0: When I was a kid, uh, my dad had a futile goal, and honestly, he tried on multiple occasions and it just never came to fruition. His goal was to actually grow grass in the backyard, okay? He wanted a lawn in the backyard. Any of your dads ever have the same um, difficulty trying to, okay, so he just had a hard time, and he had a hard time because he had four kids, okay? So three boys, and then the last one was a little girl. And so we just tore up that yard. It wasn't a big yard, but I mean, we, we played everything in that backyard. We played football back there, kickball. Um, we had an old go-kart. It was an old, we didn't make it. My dad got it for probably 20 bucks someplace. It was an old homemade go-kart. Um, blue and just as rickety had a five-horse Briggs and Stratton, you know, pull the cord and take off and go. Um, we had a little track in our backyard for that go-kart. I'm just telling you, we tore up the backyard. And I can remember dad going out like, hey, you kids, you know, and he'd kind of till it up and plant some seed. And then we just thought like, cool, fresh dirt to spin out the go-kart, you know. And, and so he just never was able to grow any good lawn in the backyard. How many of you have ever seen a place where people have tried to grow the lawn, grow grass, but because it was like a shortcut to a place you wanted to be? there was just some packed area where where nothing grew. So you just keep walking on it. Now, certainly that's true for a hiking trail where, you know, sometimes you find these game trails where deer, different wildlife, they continually take that trail and something stops growing because of the constant pressure. There could be a place that we would say is at the front of the line. There are a lot of different ways to get there, but you want to be the first here and in that grassy area. If it is at the front of the line, what by nature of the front of the line is going to have a hard time growing anything? It's that place where everybody wants to be. You know, I got to hurry and get to the the front of the line. We, We seem to have some intuitive desire to get in front of the person that may be vying for the same spot and it was one of those continual challenges that faced the disciples and quite honestly it's one of those continual challenges that keeps facing me this desire to be at the so to speak the front of the line we keep trying to maneuver and manipulate our way, and we try to get past one person and around the next. Have you ever just, you know, had fun with a group of friends at a place where there's just a small track and go-karts, and you're going to be competing with friends? Have you ever been in that situation before? A couple of years ago, we did a church staff retreat, a pastoral staff retreat, and we went away, we had some great study, planning time, and, and one of the things we did is just a little getaway, is we went to a go-kart track, and it was one of those, you know, slick tracks, and, and uh, so we all get on these go-karts. I'm telling you, pastors are ruthless drivers, okay? I mean, you're doing anything you can to just, and you know, there's a, there's a high school guy with a whistle, you know, and you're just trying to clip the person's back tire. You know what I mean? You just clip it a little bit and you spin them out. And then you like, sorry, and you drive on with a wicked smile on your face. You know what I mean? Well, why do you do that? Why do we find some pleasure in that? Well, because we're trying to get ahead of the person who may well be ahead of us. Tonight we're addressing the matter of the stony ground at the front of the line. The stony ground at the front of the line. Your Bibles are open right now to Matthew chapter 18. Look with me, if you will, down at verse number 1. Matthew chapter 18, verse number 1. Here the Bible records the following. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, and think about this question that they're asking. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is a fairly straightforward question. But the disciples were thinking about themselves personally. They're asking, how can I manipulate myself? How can I maneuver to the front of the line? Now, Jesus is going to answer this question, and we'll explore this passage more fully, as as well as, sadly, repeated other passages where they seem to be getting at the same question. How can I be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They are thinking again about this kingdom. They're thinking about, okay, there's something coming. Jesus has told them, listen, for you, there are reserved 12 thrones in the kingdom of heaven. Well, I get a throne in the kingdom of heaven, the disciples thinking. Now they start to process a little bit beyond this. So I'm going to have a throne in heaven Uh, Jesus, how can I get my throne closest to yours? Of the 12, how can I be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This appears to be a conversation that they've been having on more than one occasion. In the book of Mark, we get some details into this stony ground or front of the line situation. We're going to be back in Matthew. Take your Bible, if you would, and join me in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Look down with me at verse number 30. Mark 9, verse number 30. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, the Bible says this. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. And they shall kill him, And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. Do you find it intriguing that they are a little hesitant to ask Jesus about his suffering? What it is that Jesus is speaking of specifically? They they didn't grasp it fully, but they're like, well, I don't get it, but let's get on to some more important things. Uh, Jesus... Uh, We we didn't quite get that, but who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There are questions they're not afraid to ask, and then there are questions that maybe they just don't want to know the answer to. In fact, it's quite interesting when you study the times that Jesus spoke of his suffering. In almost every situation, after Jesus speaks about his suffering and death, almost immediately following that conversation, we see the disciples asking, Um, Jesus now about the kingdom where am I going to stand in the mix of the greats in the new kingdom Jesus had just finished speaking of his suffering and they keep going back to their place in the kingdom earlier in the book of Matthew when Jesus spoke of suffering and his, his humility to the disciples Peter took Jesus aside to have a word with him do you remember this Jesus had just heard from Peter, um, um, who do men say that I am, but who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus then confirms upon this rock, the rock of Jesus Christ, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm going to give unto you the keys to, think about the power of these words, the keys to the kingdom Now, keys to people like you and to people like me, they communicate access. They communicate authority. They communicate power. I have the keys to. And you know, Peter gets a little heady. And now, after Jesus says, upon this rock, the rock of Jesus Christ, I will build my church, Jesus then goes immediately into speaking of his suffering of his death, of his eventual you know, death, burial, resurrection. And do you know what Peter now has the audacity to do? Jesus just speaks of his suffering. Peter says, Jesus, uh, uh, come here a minute. Yeah, come, come here. I need to talk to you. You're going to stop talking about this right now. Peter actually chides Jesus for speaking about his suffering. In Peter's mind, this does not jive. This doesn't mix with our kingdom thinking. Jesus, we're going to rule. You know, Peter kept walking on the stony ground of, I want to be the first in line. And it's in this same chapter I mean, we we almost get the sense that this is just moments away after Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. That in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, but he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Peter seemed to think that suffering and humility were inconsistent with his kingdom calling. And again, this seems to be their continual challenge in the familiar conversation, the ground that they continually walk on. It becomes hardened, stony ground. In Mark chapter 10, verse number 35, look with me there if your Bibles are are open. Mark chapter 10, look down at verse number 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him saying, this is just this repeated conversation, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Now think about this request. Hey, I have a question to ask you. Jesus, we want to ask you something. What is it? Well, will you do whatever we ask you to do? Without them actually telling Jesus what they want, they want Jesus to agree to do whatever it is that they ask of him to do. The passage, of course, goes on, verse 36, and he said unto them, what would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, can you imagine them kind of looking over their shoulder, maybe to see if there are other disciples around, that maybe they offer this in somewhat hushed tones they don't want everybody to hear? Uh, they said unto him, verse 37, uh, Grant unto us that we may sit one on the right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Jesus now turns this conversation. Instead of Jesus, you know, taking his hand and planting it on his forehead, instead of Jesus saying, Seriously? Are we having this conversation again? Jesus now once more goes through. Now, there is a baptism that that I will be baptized with. Can you go through that same? Now, they, somewhat unknowing, said, well, of course. Yes, Jesus, we'll go through the same thing that you're going through. And Jesus said of a truth, you will go through the same baptism by which I am baptized. In other words, you're going to identify with some of the same sufferings that are mine. But again, to sit on my right hand and on my left is for my Father to offer. The other disciples eventually find out about this conversation, and then they have some conversation with James and John. Now, there seems to be a parallel passage, and it's not a contradictory passage. It's not even one of those passages where, well, isn't, isn't this the same thing, but it's not the same. I really think what happened is James and John went, and then they, they try another approach. This is how it's recorded in the Matthew passage. Matthew chapter 20, if you want to see how is this answered. We're kind of jumping back between Mark and Matthew. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse number 20. Then came to him, to Jesus. Are you ready for this? The mother of Zebedee's children, with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on, thy left, on the left hand in thy kingdom. Do you know what just happened? They, they tell mom, mom, we went to Jesus and we asked him about sitting on his right hand and his left, what did he say? He said it was his father's to give. And then some other things about identifying with his sufferings, but, but ultimately really, he just said it was his father's to give. Come on, let's go ask him. I'll do the talking. Okay? And now mommy goes, and she's the one who asks at the feet of Jesus. Do you get the idea that this seems to be a continual pattern in their thinking? Who will be the greatest among you? One man wrote, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. When we come back to our original question where we opened in Matthew, who shall be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We revisit that and we do so again from the book of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. Beginning in verse number 33, and he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be, here it is again, the the stony, well-trodden ground of first. They disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, do you get the the picture of patience? and, And here we go again, but this is what they need to hear. He set them down and he said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Jesus, when they're debating who's going to be the greatest, now a child in their day and in their culture was similar to what we mentioned, um, only to a greater extent what we would have mentioned about how the culture viewed a woman in their day. A child? you remember when the children people were bringing their children to Jesus and Jesus chides the disciple excuse me the disciples chide the parents for bringing the children what are you doing the master's busy and Jesus chides the disciples he said allow the little children to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven apparently that hadn't registered and so now when they're debating the greatest Jesus says hey hey come here a minute and a little child looks at Jesus in the eyes and they begin to, to you know, kind of toddle towards him. And now Jesus takes the child and he, and he stands him in the midst. And maybe Jesus, with those gentle hands, takes and places them on the child's shoulder or around the child's arms. And he says now to the disciples, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you will be as this child. Now what Jesus is not saying is childishness is necessary for the kingdom of God. What he's saying is a childlikeness. Not childishness, a childlikeness. You say, well, well, what does that mean? It means that a child understands its dependence, is totally reliant upon another. If I'm going to have what I need, it comes on behalf of another. I cannot do myself. I have to rely on the strength, the provision, the care the love of another. And so Jesus uses the simplicity of a child to say, if you truly are seeking greatness, then a child is your example. We often have a false perception of what it is that God is calling us to be. If we want to define humility, we would say humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility, honestly assessing ourselves. God, I have a false mirror when I don't use the true mirror of your word, when I use another person, when I use what I think to be my strengths, when I use where I'm trying to get in life. Lord, I'm using some some carnival mirror that's distorting reality. But when I start to look at myself in light of the holiness of God, When I compare my sinfulness to his perfection and holiness, I start to get a true understanding, a real grip on my own reality. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote this. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And one of the greatest challenges of pride is its difficulty to detect in self. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of days gone by, said, Pride is the first sin that entered into the universe and the last that is rooted out. He said, It is God's most stubborn enemy. Pride is much more difficult to be discerned than any other corruption because of its very nature. That is, pride is a person having too high an opinion of himself. It is a surprise then that a person who has too high an opinion of himself becomes somewhat unaware of it. It's like, I, I, I had no honest idea. Pride is so subtle that it makes us blind to our failures, to our weaknesses, and to our needs has there ever been a sin that is so easy to spot in others, yet so difficult to detect in ourselves? Jesus now changes gears, and again, with incredible godlike patience and long-suffering, he begins to provide some additional instruction, and this is how we're going to wrap this up. This instruction comes right after James and John approach Jesus about sitting on his right hand and on his left. The other ten, they're all bothered, they're furious that they would dare ask a question that they wanted to ask themselves. So notice the instruction of their leader. Mark chapter 10. Look with me, if you will, down beginning in verse number 42. Mark 10. Look down at verse 42. Here the Bible records verse 42, Mark 10. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them. You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. That word means your servant. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So what instruction from these closing words does Jesus offer his disciples that oftentimes have found themselves off the the path that they should be on and on the well-worn stony ground of attempting to be the first in line? What instructions does Jesus leave? Instruction number one, reject the world's model for greatness. Number one, reject the world's model for greatness. Campus Church, you and I are inundated continually with messaging about what it means to be great. What to have, what to look like, how to assert yourself, how to be the most interesting person in the room. We continually have this, this diet of a path that leads to here's how you get to be the first in line. And do you know what Jesus does? He counters in ways that are that are diametrically opposed to this pattern. And he says, okay, but so shall it not be among you, Mark 10 43. This is not the path to true greatness. One commentary said it this way, at no place do the ethics of the kingdom of God clash more vigorously with the ethics of the world than in matters of power and service. He says there is an absolute collision of worldview. At, at no place, he says, do these things find themselves more at odds than, than power and service. The, the world says... Listen, you got to exercise your power over. You got to look out for yourself. Nobody else is going to do that for you. Think about how opposed that is where Jesus says, I came to seek and to save. I came to serve. I came to gird on the towel and wash the feet of those that are actually, by everyone else's standard, supposed to be washing mine. What do we do if we want to get off that well-worn, that, that trodden, beaten path of me first? The first thing that we do is we reject the world's model for greatness. And what a wonderful preview of the kingdom when the church rejects the world's model for greatness. What a great preview. Like we actually start to taste a little bit of, hey, this is what the kingdom is going to be like. One person said it this way, the preeminent virtue of God's kingdom is not power, not even freedom, but service. When you and I truly love one another, the natural outpouring of that love is serving by love one another. Truly, you can't help yourself but to serve others when your heart's filled with love. I mean, what what starts to happen? Do you remember when? Like if you're married and you've been married for years, my parents this next week are going to celebrate 60 years as a married couple. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we get to acknowledge 60 years. You know, what a special time. How do you do that for 60 years? You do that because love pours out this sense of service. My... Um, my parents, again, married for 60 years, not without difficulty, not without challenge. But do you know when you first stand before someone, a pastor, and you say um, to love, to honor and cherish in, in, for riches, um, for, for richer, for poorer, um, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, you're making a commitment to serve the other despite the circumstances. So dad, you know, my dad, always the, the, the powerhouse, so to speak, of the family. You know, this guy that's just the stocky build, you know, strong arms. I mean, dad, you know, he's now the retired cop, but his nickname on the force was Rhino because dad would just like, he's going to charge into any situation. You know, it was, it's really something when, when your parents start to age. And then some years ago, dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And to watch that strength begin to wane and to watch, you know, the the strength begin to fade and then the weakness begin to to reveal itself. And then to watch my mom care for my dad, truly remarkable. But what else does love do? Love just naturally continues to say, this is not about me. I read a story years ago of a, of a young couple, wonderfully in love, newly married, and she was in, sadly, a, a tragic car accident that didn't take her life, but, but woefully marred her face. Uh, through the surgery to repair her, several of the nerves were cut in her face, and now she, she had a crooked smile. She no longer had control of of one side of her face, so she could smile on one side, but the other side was was warped and twisted. And she was sad. She, of course, wanted to be beautiful for her husband, and and her husband, just with undying love, just so thought the radiant beauty of her was far beyond her smile. But tears filled her eyes, and the doctor who's writing about this, recording the memory, said, I'll never forget when she was, she was, you know, bemoaning the fact that her smile would never be like it was. And he told her how beautiful it was. And then he said he watched, and he said it was like I was intruding on sacred ground. He said, I'm standing in the corner of the room. And the husband bent over, twisting his own lips to match hers, and kissed his wife and eased her fears. What else does love do? love is that thing that can't help but serve this is not the model that the world's going to give us the well-worn path says you better look out for yourself but the path that god's leading us on is to buy love serve one another reject the world's model for greatness what else do we see don't reject the potential for greatness You say, well, hang on a minute here. We'll wait. The disciples are saying, hey, how can I be the greatest? And do you know, Jesus answers with a somewhat shocking reply. We even stand back and we say, where in the world did that come from? Notice what he said. Verse number 43, Mark chapter 10, he says, but whosoever will be. That little expression means whoever desires to be. Listen, Jesus does not condemn here the desire for greatness. He says, okay, whosoever, if you want to be great, if you want to desire something worthwhile, he says, but whosoever will be desires to be great among you shall be your minister. We're we're certainly not saying, oh, the the minister at church. No, we're talking about the servant of God's people. That's you. That's me. That's all of us. Whoever desires to be truly great in God's economy is the person who says, Lord, sign me up. And he says, okay, here's what you're going to do. Maybe in obscurity. Maybe in ways that nobody else sees but Almighty God find opportunity to humbly serve one another. James and John, they'd already been men who'd gone out and preached. They'd performed miracles. They'd left all. They had sacrificed. They had recognition as leaders in Jesus' group of followers, yet they had not learned true greatness. They wanted to continue to climb the ladder of success, and Jesus said, get off the ladder. True greatness And a desire for true greatness is not what Jesus condemns. He just says, here's the real path, and it's going to be a different path. In fact, there's not a lot of people that have walked on it. There's no stony ground there. If you're seeking true greatness, then then find opportunity to serve and be the minister of all. Number three, remove yourself from the front of the line. Remove yourself Remove yourself from the front of the line. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable that relays the following scenario. It's a a wedding scene, and apparently there are places of honor at the wedding. Table, seating, where, where people would come and be served. And he said, hey, listen, when you go into the wedding, don't go and, hey, hey, there's the best seat at the banquet. He says, don't take that seat. He says, when you get to the wedding... Here's what you do in my kingdom. He says, you go take the lowest seat. Remove yourself, Jesus is saying, from the front of the line. You you say, no, 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 I'm I'm coming back here. So you come back here and sit down and take the lowest seat you can find. Well, somebody else is going to sit. That's exactly right. Somebody else is. Well, what if they get served? They probably will. Well, what if I don't have anybody to talk? You might not. Jesus says, take the lowest seat you can find when you, when you come to the wedding. And he says, do you know what happens? He said, so many times people are those that say, oh, I got the best seat. And then the, the host of the whole thing says, hey, I'm sorry, um, that seat's saved for someone else. Do you mind taking a lower seat? Uh, no, I'll, I'll take. I'll sit here. No, no, that one's saved too. Okay, I'll sit here. Do you mind going? Okay, I'll just go all the way down here. Okay. And Jesus says, take the lowest seat. And then do you know what you have the potential for? Hey, what what are you doing sitting down there? No, 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 you come on. I I have another seat for you. Do you know the person that lifts themselves up, God says, will be abased, but the person who humbles themselves has the opportunity for God Almighty to say, let me lift you up. What do we do? Remove yourself from the front of the line. And then last, magnify the right person. John the Baptist, as his star began to fade, came to this conclusion. He must. There was no option. He must. There's no other plan. He must. Maybe we could come up with another. He must increase. But I must decrease. Do you know when you you sit on a teeter-totter, There there is no dual increase. Only one can increase, and only at the expense of the other. And do you know what John the Baptist is saying? Listen, if if I'm on this, if I'm on this this rotating plane with Jesus, there's only one direction that I want to go. He has to increase. I must decrease. It was the powerful sacrifice made by Jesus Christ that brought the power necessary to transform these 12 men. They were glory seekers and they began, they became seekers of his glory. Lord, I want myself to decrease. I want Jesus Christ to increase. As you leave tonight, let me encourage you to take two passages of scripture with you and maybe put to memory they are Proverbs 1533. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. And first Peter chapter five, verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he that he may exalt you in due time.